3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to breakfast here on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7am and it's time for Monday breakfast with James, myself and Rob and Grace. How was your weekend, everybody? Morning, everyone. Yes, my weekend has been lovely. Um, I'd spend a whole week with my cousin and she's actually... Probably already going to be reaching back Malaysia today, uh, this morning. But yeah, we had a great time. We went for a lot of food hunting. We have uh, I tried Ar- Irish coffee on oh, Sunday yeah. yesterday. It was wow. really nice, really really go. nice. Uh, it was in a store in Ligon, so that was so I've been wanting to try for a long time. Yeah, the coffee is really good. It surprised me a lot. Yummy. Yeah, good yeah. morning, everyone. Um, yeah, my weekend was good um, for the most part. Just spent. Uh, eating ice cream and sitting at Elwood Beach. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which was really... I spent about, uh, I think, close to 45 minutes there on Saturday afternoon. Mm. And it was just magical. Magical. Blissful. That's ideal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the weather's obviously getting better. I mean, in terms of being able to eat ice cream without shivering. So Yeah. Yeah. yeah the weekend beautiful. turned it on. Mm-hmm. It turned it on this weekend. Yeah. Yes. Spring is really here. Nice. Spring is here. Well, Finally, yeah. I spent an an unusual amount of time in the sun, even for myself. Mm. Went lawn bowling for the first time ever. Wow. Oh, what's that? Uh, it's, a, it's a sport where you roll a ball towards another ball, and it curves. You okay. often see a lot of older citizens playing it. No, oh. but I think there might be something in it, and I might pursue lawn bowls into the future. Amazing. Was it was it the barefoot kind? I, I went barefoot because yep. I wanted to be grounded, yep. you know, feel Mother Earth under my feet. <laughs> but a lot of people opted for shoes, and that's yep. fine. You know, whatever you're comfortable in. Yep. Mm, that's great. So, I haven't tried it before. I'd love to try. Yes. Yeah. It is like, I've done it a couple of times. It's truly one of those things you watch other people do it, and you're like, there's no way that that can be fun. Yeah, why, why are you, you know, doing that? Just rolling a ball. Mm. bit of grass but then you try it and like it's Uh, like really exhilarating and fun and like tense you know after like a lot of us played it was with my pub footy team Mm. and you know first few rolls people were a bit uncomfortable but then after a while they'd roll it and they'd do the walk after the ball watching it like an eagle (laughs) and they were they were in and it was beautiful to see that transition from oh i don't know to like yeah i'm in i'm locked in yeah. Nice. That's so, amazing. Good weekend all round, I reckon. Mm-hmm. So yep. we've got a few news headlines today. Yeah. So Rob, do you want to start off with yours? Yeah, sure. Uh, the federal government will today announce a bill to protect gig workers, including making it a criminal offence to deliberately underpay workers. Employers could face up to 10 years in jail and maximum fines of $7.8 million or three times the amount that was underpaid if that amount exceeds the maximum fine. The Minister for Workplace Relations, Tony Burke, says if a worker 
intentionally takes money from the till, it's a criminal offence. But if an employer withholds money from your pay, it's not. Ooh. And the endangered indigenous language, per Tami, spoken south of Alice Spring, is now left only with 20 speakers, mainly elderly, but an Alice Springs program is here to save it. So a Patami school in Alice Springs has started running a language nest, which is an immersive program similar to a playgroup in which it moms and bubs come to the school four days a week to take part in activities and lessons. So the program will basically run entirely in this language, uh, but English will be left at the door. And that's that one rule. The program is open to children aged 0 to 5, and currently eight babies are participating in the program and the classes, yeah, yeah, entirely run in this language, basically. Wow. Awesome. Yep. Amazing. Uh, the headline I've got today is linked to my other show, The Sports Show, The Sporting Record. I've mm. uh, got an interview lined up that'll be great based on this article. Mm. Um, Australian sport could look to philanthropy as athletes report financial stress. So a survey showed that elite athletes are struggling with cost of living, which I found very surprising. Yep. You know, you don't think of athletes first when you think of struggling. And sport philanthropy is touted as a way that could bridge that shortfall, just like they do with the arts, a non-profit Australian Sports Foundation said. So just one statistic from that article in The Guardian that I found amazing is that about half of Australian athletes are living mm. below the poverty line at the moment. Wow. On about 23000 a year on average. So mm. they're struggling. Who, who would have thought that? That's a, that's a pretty huge, huge proportion of yeah. athletes. So I had a chat the other day with uh, Patrick Walker, the CEO of, of um, Australian Sport Foundation, and we'll be playing that interview on Thursday at 4 p.m. on the Sporting Record. So there you go. If you want to hear more about Sweet. that, check it out. Nice. So there we go. So we've got a few interviews lined up today. Um, starting with, with me, I interviewed Aud Bernard, a demographer and population geographer from the University of Queensland, about a great article she co-wrote on migration and housing crisis um, and myth-busting a few things there. Then we'll move on to talk about climate change education with Kim Beasy, senior lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Tasmania talking about how teachers are navigating climate change in the classroom at primary and secondary level, which was a conversation that actually gave me quite a bit of hope. So that'll be a good one. Mm. What then, Rob? Uh, we're also talking to the Trans Justice Project about um, a report they've recently released about uh, anti-trans hate, both in person and online. Um, yeah, super important, especially in a time when other places in the media are creating stories about trans people without talking to trans people. Yeah. Mm. Great. Yep, and I'll wrap up with a conversation with Professor Jill Newby, who is a clinical psychologist at the University of New South Wales and the affiliated Black Dog Institute, which is a medical research institute that investigates mental health in Australia, where we discuss about an online course to help you stop ruminating. Uh, rum, ruminating. 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 Fantastic. I'll be, I'll be listening closely to that one. Awesome. Mm. A lot of rumination here at 3CR. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so without further ado, we'll get to our first interview with uh, demographer and population geographer, Aud Bernard. 
Our next guest here on Monday Breakfast is Ord Bernard, a demographer from the University of Queensland, here to talk about the intersection of migration and the housing crisis and general demographic trends occurring across Australia. Ord, along with their colleague, Darina Pajani, wrote a fantastic article in The Conversation last week called Think Curbing Overseas Migration Will End the Housing Crisis? It Won't and We Can't Afford to Do It. So Monday Breakfast reached out to talk to Ord about their research and this particular article. All right, Ord, thanks for coming on to Monday Breakfast today. Good morning, James. Thanks for having me. Just to start off, Ord, uh, could you tell me how you came to be involved in this investigation of the relationship between migration and the housing crisis? Yes, uh, look, I'm a demographer at the University of Queensland, so I do work on uh, the drivers of population and one of the key drivers of population uh, change and population growth uh, in Australia is uh, migration, both international and internal migration. And so that's how I uh, joined uh, Dorina on her work on uh, migration and housing. Fantastic. So as I understand it, you you and Dorina wrote a fantastic uh article in the conversation about the intersection between migration and the housing crisis. And to do that, you analysed a whole lot of data from across Australia. What sort of patterns emerged uh, from your investigation of this? Look, what we really looked at is long-term trends in uh, net uh, overseas migration. So how many people uh, are coming to Australia every year and how many people are leaving the country. So if you look at you know, long-term uh, historical trends and looking back all the way to the 90s, uh, yes, it's true that the current level of overseas migration is at a historically, historical high. Uh, it's going to peak you know, somewhere around 400 southern net this year. Uh, but if you look at the long, long uh, term, you know, um, because, it, you know, it doesn't basically doesn't compensate for the loss we saw during COVID. So if you remember in 2020 and 2021, our borders were closed and so nobody came to Australia. Now, if we had, you know, kept the level of migration to pre-COVID levels, we would today have in Australia at least, you know, 20 or 50,000 more people that we have today. Wow. And so what this means is that while migration is currently high, it actually doesn't compensate for um, all the people who didn't come uh, during COVID. Wow. So it sounds like that there may be arguments that migration is at an all-time high, but in reality, because of COVID, there's actually a shortfall in the amount of migration that's come to this country and we're trying to catch up. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. What we're seeing now is this catch-up migration and it's not going to make up for the losses of 2020 and 2021. And if you look at the forecast, uh, it's a very short, you know, uh, increase it's very pronounced but it's very short by you know 2024 2025 it's going most likely going to go down to uh, long-term trends which is about 250,000 net uh, every year so a gain of 250,000 uh, people every year so yes that's uh, you know that's a small temporary increase that we're seeing now and I think that you know that's an important point because uh, planners, you know, and policymakers, people who actually work on the housing supply, 
um, then the total population we have now shouldn't really be a surprise because, you know, if you look at all the projections we've made, you know, pre-COVID to try to foresee how large the population will be in the future, as I said, it's today lower than what we were expecting before COVID. So really not, uh, not a big surprise there. Oh, fantastic. And, of course, uh, migration is very important to an economy. And I think the actual act of trying to catch up is indication that moving forward, uh, we need more migration to keep this economy chugging along nicely. Um, just to finish off, Ord, um, when it comes to changing patterns in Australia's demographics and population, does anything come to your mind from your work throughout this over the past few years about how Australia's changing or evolving in any way? Look, um, actually, if you look again, if you look at long-term trends, um, things are relatively constant and stable. But what has COVID done, though, is not really creating new trends in terms of migration or fertility, but it's really um, increasing existing trends. So, for example, you know, migration was high. It's a bit high now, but it's going to go back. The same thing for fertility. Fertility has been declining for a long time. And now, you know, after COVID, it's declining even more, but it's even lower, but it's not really a new trend. I think what's interesting, though, is that if we move from this kind of national picture to looking at what's happening in local areas, and actually that's where things are getting a bit more uh, complicated and, and challenging in some parts of Australia because in some regions, um, not only we have international migration, but we also have internal, particularly interstate migration that's mm. coming on top. So if you look at, for example, Brisbane and southeast Queensland, on top we have a historically high level of interstate migration and that really combines with uh, overseas migration to have a kind of a significant impact uh, locally, so it's quite you know it's quite complex. It depends on the area, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of there are some of these changing changes are happening now. Yes. Oh, fantastic! Well, I think that just about does it for time. Ord, thank you so much for coming onto the show. All right, thank you, James. That was Dr. Ord Bernard, a demographer and population geographer at the Queensland Centre for Population Research at the University of Queensland, and the co-author of the Conversation article, Think Curbing Overseas Migration Will End the Housing Crisis? It won't, and we can't afford to do it. And I think it's just worth reading out the conclusion of the article, just so it's all out there in the open. International migration contributes to the housing demand, but it's hardly the only or even the main cause of the housing crisis. The problem cannot be solved by curbing migration. To make Australian housing affordable again, we need to increase housing supply in line with demand. We also need to stop inflationary investments in existing housing by abolishing tax rules such as negative gearing and capital gains tax. you want.
Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. The Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. So you just heard a lovely song called My Witch by Jen Clore before those announcements. And then before that, an interview with Aud Bernard, a demographer and population geographer at the University of Queensland. Now we have a few more headlines to you before we have the next interview. Yeah, so all the way in Byron Bay, Byron's proposed 60-day Airbnb cap will unlikely to come into effect until next year, despite the housing crisis. Oh yeah, so basically to ease pressure on the housing market will not come into effect until the middle of next year if the government decides to allow it, according to Holiday's Hotspot Mayor. And if the Titan rules are approved by the New South Wales, uh, New South Wales government, they will just only apply to Byron and not other councils also, who are also struggling with housing amid a statewide shortage. Byron is waiting for the NS. NSW government to formally respond to this independent planning advice from April that advocated for a 60-day annual cap. Going even further than the council, in the council, Byron Shire Council initially wanted. The planning minister, Paul Scully, is expected to hand down a final ruling on advice only in the coming months. Hey. Sorry. Uh, Queensland's um, exporter has been accused of systematically bribing Nauruan politicians for favourable mining deals on the Pacific Island. Uh, They've just applied to have a charge of foreign bribery permanently stayed, arguing a fair trial is impossible, and accusing Australian authorities of mishandling the investigation and losing key evidence. Interesting. Uh, GEDAX Australia... Um, a shipping and export company is, yeah, accused of systematically bribing key politicians on Nauru in return for favourable deals on phosphate mining contracts. Oh, boy. Mm. Fair bit going on there. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, One more for us all. Uh, Officials investigate death at Burning Man as thousands stranded by floods. So the sheriff's office offers new details, but says the death occurred during festival in Nevada Desert, where stone storms have turned the ground to mud. So over 70,000 uh, 70, attendees of the annual Burning Man Festival in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada are stranded as the festival comes to a close on Monday due to heavy rains that have cut off access to the site. Oh, wow. So Burning Man's having a shocker. 70,000 people. Yeah. Wow. So apparently... Because it's a it's a desert. It was a dried out lake bed, and mm. there've been huge rains, and they've turned that lake bed into a kind of like muddy clay. Yeah. And when that dries, it it's almost like cement. Yeah. So it's it's just flooded right now, and people oh. are stuck. They can't drive cars. They can't ride bikes. Mm. Yeah. People's wow. tents are getting smashed. You know, like ooh, ooh, oh. Oh my god, that's awful. So self reliance, a burning man, is getting a bit hairy now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
um, got another fun fact for all of us. So according to the age, turns out there's a 8.7 million year old skull that suggests we might not actually have evolved from Africa after all. Because Africa apparently has always been considered the cradle of mankind, where humans evolved from the apes on the continent before spreading to the rest of the world. But according to this skull, which have been discovered in Turkey, and it, although it appears to predate African apes, it suggests that the human origins may actually lie in Europe. The fossil of what's called the Anadoluvius Turkey was discovered in Kankiri, which is a city about 138 kilometers northeast of Ankara and is thought to date for about 8.7 million years ago. In contrast, though, uh, early hominins, the group that includes chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, humans, and their fossil ancestors, were not seen in Africa until about 7 million years ago. So it suggests that the ancestors of African apes and humans evolved in Europe before migrating south between 9 million and 7 million years ago. Whoa. Whoa. Interesting. So we may not actually originally come from Africa and it turns out it's going to start from Europe instead. But yeah, this is only one skull, so we never know. You never know. You never know. That, that could be paradigm busting. That could be a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Good news headlines, guys. Uh, now we've got our next interview with Kim Beasy. Monday Breakfast is now joined by Kim Beasy, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Tasmania, to talk about climate change in the classroom. All right, Kim, thank you for coming into Monday Breakfast today. Thanks for having me. So, a wonderful article on the conversation was published not long ago, which was titled, um, I Tend to Be Very Gentle, How Teachers Are Navigating Climate Change in the Classroom, which you co-wrote. Um, this was based on a research project. Uh, how did this research project come about? Yeah, sure. So I'm a part of a team uh, with some other fabulous people uh, with Curious Climate Schools. So the research project uh, really surfaced through this program, which is about supporting teachers and students uh, in schools to ask questions about climate change. So we go and find answers to the questions that are submitted by students and, um, and respond. So the project uh, was with teachers, so the research, and what we were really interested in was trying to understand um, teachers' experiences of teaching climate change. We know that this can be quite a, a challenging topic uh, to, to talk about sometimes, so how is it that teachers on the ground go about doing this work and um, what sort of supports do they need into the future? Fantastic. So you ended up uh, interviewing about nine teachers. Um, out of those findings and in the interviews, was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, look, I think this is the beauty of research and why I why I love my job so much is because there's always there's always something that surprises you. And for us, I think uh, one of the the big take homes is teachers were describing this idea of wearing a mask a lot of the time. So. Mm. Um, they're struggling actually often with their own feelings of climate change and in a way having to hide that uh, from the students in their classroom and present this positive front. So this was described to us as, as wearing a mask. Wow, that's fantastic, wearing the mask. That's pretty poignant given the, the whole COVID debacle we've all been through. That's very true. Um, so uh, there's a big focus on messages of hope that comes through the article and the research project itself. Uh, 
Are there any examples you can think of of ways teachers are being able to deliver that hopeful message in what can seem like a lot of doom and gloom? Yeah, look, uh, the teachers that we spoke with uh, were all doing a really, you know, really great job of this. And I think for the most part, um, all teachers are. And actually, there is a lot to be hopeful about. So while we can get bogged down at times with some of the really scary statistics and happenings uh, in and around the world with climate change, uh, there's also some amazing solutions that are happening. And we can all get involved in some way or another with being a part of that, um, you know, story of hope and solutions. So for the teachers that we were speaking with, uh, you know, turning their attentions and their students' attentions to individual action, community action, and that systemic action was often a way that they were able to, to navigate or to, you know, counterbalance, if you like, some of those feelings of sadness or worry that students were, were talking about. Oh, fantastic. The different scales is a wonderful idea. I've done some work on that in the past myself as someone who studied a Master of Environment. Um, And there's a part of the article that I'll just read out because I think it's pretty poignant. Um, Teachers emphasise the importance of moving between the local and the global and individual and societal scales of climate problems and solutions. And one teacher noted, instead of the children feeling like they have the weight of what they can do as individuals, which we've discussed... We're going to talk about what can the world do as a global citizen, what can everybody do, and working together as a bigger part of the whole. Um, Just from your experience, Kim, uh, in what ways can we emphasise that global scale, the citizen scale, or even the community solidarity scale? Um, What are some techniques for doing that? Yeah, so I think, well, lots, of course. Mm. Um, I think from, it depends also on the age um, of students or young people or adults, so obviously context is important. But I think we, whenever we're talking about climate change or solutions to, to you know, creating a sustainable world, trying to contextualise what you're doing in that broader global sphere is really important. Mm. So often, um, you know, well, what's the point of me riding my bike? You know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna do anything. And we actually know that that's that's not true. Uh, there's so many kind of ripple effects from from that action of, um, you know, we'll, we'll take the example of riding your bike. Not only are you kind of reducing your individual carbon footprint from undertaking that action, but actually you're sending a, a message out to those around you in your community. That visibility of that act, um, you know, that's how we create cultures. It's that mm. power of uh, visibility that uh, it can be, actually be really important. So I think it's it's those sorts of contextualization of actions that helps us to move between that local to that global, thinking about what does this mean in the broader, uh, you know, community that I'm in and that, and that global community that I'm a part of. Oh, wow, fantastic. The idea that individual actions aren't just individual, they can ripple out into the world around you, that, that's a really powerful idea. And I suppose it connects to the idea that I think a lot of young people are really having as well. I taught a class on sustainability and social change not long ago. And the idea of interconnection, that every action is connected to lots of other things and people and the world around us and emphasising that idea, there seems to be a bit of an awakening throughout at least the younger generations, many more as well, 
that we are all interconnected and this climate problem is, is testament to that. Yeah, uh, look, I 100% agree with you and I think what we want to see now is this reflected in the education system that young mm. people are a part of and I think through the research that we've done um, and some of the other research that we've done around uh, curriculum, we know that climate change is predominantly situated in the science sphere Mm. Uh, and, you know, drawing on that idea of interconnections, we want to see climate change, you know, demonstrated or taught across curriculum. So how how are we bringing through those other disciplinary areas? So young people are making those connections. You know, it's not only a science problem, but it's a social issue. Uh, How are economics going to feature in what we need to do to respond to climate change? So really starting to draw attention to that holistic and interdisciplinarity nature Mm. of the problem. Mm, Fantastic. Um, On on that note, uh, as it currently sits at the moment with the curriculums and the education system in this country, or in Tasmania specifically, is it currently situated in the sciences or is there a growing interdiscipline aspect to it? Yeah, look, the Australian curriculum that um, you know we have to, to work with and different states and territories sometimes have their own um, syllabuses that they use as well. Uh, c- climate change is featured in, in science, so that's kind of where it's located. In primary uh, curriculum, there's actually no reference of climate change at all. So... Um, So that obviously presents a bit of a challenge. Some of the ways or entry points that teachers are using is through the sustainability cross-curriculum priority. So with sustainability as a a focus or um, cross-curriculum priority, so that's something that threads through uh, everything that uh, is happening in schools, we see quite a focus on futures. So climate change can come into play there, but... um, Certainly not to the extent that we need to see, nor in the subjects that uh, we know young people want to see climate change in. So this is something that we're trying to advocate for and there's lots of other people in and around Australia and elsewhere that are trying to provide resources and support for schools, teachers and you know systems to, to create this change. Mm. You, you mentioned futures there, which I think is a very interesting idea. Uh, from your experience, is there much uh, work or work being done in the classroom on visioning a future post-climate change or a world where environment is in a healthy, regener- regenerative state? Is there much work like that being done at the moment? Yeah, that's such an interesting uh, question and that's, um, that's kind of my, my interest area as well. Uh, because we know that we need this. We, we need to have positive visions of the future uh, you know, to, to create them, right? If we, don't, mm. if we don't have something to work towards, then what are we all doing? Mm. Um, and I think the short answer is not enough. Mm. We need to see more. Um, and to create a positive vision of a future, you kind of need those skills of creativity and imagination uh, and to think critically about how things could be otherwise. So... Uh, there's a lot of uh, skills actually that underpin the ability to to think about and create alternative visions of of futures. And this also, uh, again, kind of demands that interdisciplinary lens because if you're going to create that future, uh, you actually need to think holistically about all of the systems that play into that. So uh, the short answer is definitely needed and probably not enough at the moment. Mm, 
not enough at the moment. That's that's good to note. <laughs> um, just coming back to the the teachers who are doing this work and are learning and as they go, as often is the case. What appear to be the biggest barriers for teachers and students in that breath in covering climate change in the classrooms? You know, we speak of um, there's not enough visioning, there could be more, messages of hope are really good but difficult to articulate sometimes, especially for teachers. What sort of barriers are there that are getting in the way of high-quality climate education? Yeah, so uh, it, it depends on where where you are in the education system. So if we think about high schools, um, I guess for the moment, we find that there's some really big structural barriers to the way that climate change can be introduced because of timetables. So a high school day, you know, the average student goes from, you know, probably across five different classrooms, five different teachers, um, you know, on five different uh, topics or curriculum areas. So actually the way that the days are structured uh, is, is quite the barrier and the siloing of curriculum content uh, is, is quite the barrier. So this is what teachers were telling us, that they just don't have enough time. Um, the silo of the curriculum makes it really, really difficult. We also um, see just resourcing of schools as well as, as being a bit of a barrier. So if teachers do want to undertake a project uh, to support students in that climate action, then often there's a lot of difficulty in uh, community coming into schools, uh, being able to work alongside, uh, you know, funding obviously for discrete projects. So uh, often it's those systemic and structural barriers that are spoken about by teachers. There's mm. also um, this idea of it being a science problem too. So if you talk to a teacher in, uh, and this came through in the data, uh, some of the uh, teachers that we spoke with were saying, oh, well, you know, I don't really see myself as a scientist. Uh, and, and what that means is that if teachers don't feel confident in their own knowledge of climate change, perceived knowledge of climate change, then often that becomes a barrier to them wanting to introduce it into classrooms as well. Um, and similarly for those uh, science teachers, uh, often what we were hearing there as well was uh, they're happy to talk about the facts of climate change but have some real reservations about kind of how to support students emotionally when when it gets hard, you know, when those existential questions start coming up, teachers are feeling ill-prepared to have those conversations with students. Mm. Um, so more support for teachers in, um, you know, professional development, obviously, but at the same time, teachers are doing a lot already. So we need to be really mindful of, um, you know, who whose job is it to support students and young people when they're starting to have what we're becoming increasingly familiar with as a term, you know, climate anxiety. So when those questions around what does my future look like, will there be a world for me as an adult, um, they can be really challenging and quite confronting questions to have to navigate with. Mm, for sure. Those are, those are big, big questions. And when you don't have enough time or resourcing, I'm sure it could be very hard. Mm. Um, so you touched on a few things there, and it sounds like the teachers are really making do with what they can and doing a great job, and we do have a pretty good education system in this country. So I'm just wondering, what can be done to better support these teachers and students learn about climate change? You noted that there were a few structural and systemic barriers. 
um, which would suggest maybe some different policy solutions. Uh, what sort of things could be done to help everybody do this just a little bit better? Yeah, so, I, you know, I guess there's the pragmatic response there and then the idealistic response. Mm. Uh, I think if we were being idealistic, we might want to reimagine what our education system looks like. You know, do we need students going from English to math to science? Um, you know, how could we have a more integrated curriculum and learning experiences which perhaps might be more conducive to tackling and having a, you know, a, a better understanding and appreciation for complex problems such as um, climate change. Um, if we're talking more in the, the practical, pragmatic, what can we do tomorrow realm, um, I think it's finding those local community connections and drawing on the resources that are available within community. So the Curious Climate Schools project is you know, one example or one initiative that is supporting Tasmanian teachers at the moment. Um, but likewise, there's always, you know, natural resource management groups, um, local community members who have a lot of expertise um, and experience to offer which teachers can be drawing on. And some of the research that we've done was um, showing that for those teachers that have utilised guest speakers and the like, it's been really successful. Students kind of perk up when someone new comes into the classroom. So not only is it a way of kind of um, circumventing those resourcing issues because you're drawing on, you know, community that already exists, but it's also kind of touching on those how do we engage students, what do students want and what do they find beneficial for their learning as well. So some good innovative solutions are available now. Mm. Transform would be great, but right now get some uh, community involved. Sounds pretty good. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Kim. I've just got one more question, if that's okay by you. Um, sure. Uh, given that the listeners um, at 3CR are very conscious about you know how they can help make the world a bit of a better place, uh, what are some takeaways from this research and I guess your career more broadly that um, the listeners could take into their day-to-day -day lives to help be a better climate ally as they move through things? Yeah, so uh, this is something that I ponder on often, as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, and I think we need to start with ourselves and taking care of ourselves. So, you know, it was a few years ago I was feeling really crippled, actually, just with um, feelings of not doing enough, I need to be doing more, um, and I felt, found that actually that was inhibiting my ability to do anything. Wow. Uh, so I think uh, starting from a place of kindness for ourselves and recognizing that we all have different capacities uh, and that changes also at different times of the day and at you know, different times in our lives. So uh, just validating that it's okay not to do everything all the time I think is really important. So that's take home number one. Uh, and I think the other thing that perhaps we want to turn our attention to a bit more is this scale of community. So what we've found um, to date is that there's a lot of emphasis on individual action and individual practice, you know, your recycling, your purchase habits, your transport modes, and they're all incredibly important. Uh, but actually this scale of community, so when we work together, amazing things happen. So, you know, how is it that people can be finding others within community that um, 
you know, can leverage that collective action. And I think this is something that we need to see more of. And where this is done, um, we, we see some pretty amazing results. So there's different renewable energy projects at the community scale that we see, local co-ops, food exchanges, um, clothing initiatives. So when, when we actually do band together and work together, uh, we, can, we can make quite a big impact. So for me, that's kind of where I'm uh, starting to turn my attention to more. Fantastic. What a wonderful note to end this on. Kim, thank you so much for your time and thanks for talking to Monday Breakfast today. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was Kim Beasy, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Tasmania, talking about climate change in the classroom and the wonderful conversation article which she co-wrote called I Tend to Be Very Gentle, How Teachers Are Navigating Climate Change in the Classroom. October is the month for all your country and Americana good times. Sleep at the Wheel, Thornby Theatre with Summer Dean on the 13th. Melissa Carper, Brunswick Ballroom on the 16th. Willie Watson at the Mimo Music Hall on the 19th. Thornby Theatre on the 20th. And Menian Town Hall on the 21st. Jenny Don't and the Spurs, the Pink Stones and the Burge Band play Brunswick Ballroom on the 12th and the Barwon Club Geelong on the 13th. All this and more this October. Love Police supports 3CR. The fears are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot a 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians fight it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land it's about a fight for freedom everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation my people who've never ceded their sovereignty we should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical.
Welcome back to Monday Breakfast, everybody. That was We Arthur by Gurumul. Uh, before we keep going, I want to give listeners a heads up that the next segment could be distressing for listeners, especially any trans and gender non-conforming listeners out there. Um, we are live with Jackie Turner, director of the Trans Justice Project, about their report on anti-trans hate titled Fueling Hate. Hi, Jackie. Can hey, you- how are you going? Good, thanks. Can you just start off by giving us a run-through of what the report found? Yeah, so um, we basically ran this report uh, through uh, February and um, in April, um, looking at the rise in anti-trans hate over the last three years, with a specific focus as well on what was happening in February and March of this year. Listeners might remember that there was a... um, large anti-trans tour by um, an anti-trans activist called Kelly J. Keane. And what we were looking to um, find is if anti-trans hate, that is experiences of abuse, harassment, vilification and violence, rose during that time. Um, what we found was, well, first of all, we were hoping to get you know 600 to 800 responses, but actually ended up getting about 3,000, which made the survey one of the largest investigations into anti-trans hate um, in Australia, basically. Mm. So we found not only is anti-trans hate widespread, but we also found that it's been escalating rapidly. We found that not only has it risen over the last three years, since 2020 to now, but also that people experience a spike in experiences of online and in-person anti-trans hate over the period of February and March, correlating with the time when Kelly J. King was touring Australia. One of the really concerning things as well that we found was that um, experiences across the community of this were really high. So basically one in two people have experienced, um, in the trans community, have experienced anti-trans hate online. So that's abuse, harassment, vilification, as well as one in two people have, trans people have also experienced anti-trans hate in person. So that can be things like, you know, being um, followed, you know, having things yelled at them, um, as well as more extreme um, examples of anti-trans hate, like um, violence and, um, you know, threats and these sorts of things. So, um, you know, obviously really concerning. One of the key recommendations that we have coming out of the report is that there's a need for new anti-vilification laws to help protect the entire LGBT community from hate. As we're seeing these... um, yeah, as we're seeing the, the rise um, in hate um, escalate, um, mm. we need more protections from um, both state and federal governments to help combat hate. Yeah, sure. Jackie, I, I want to ask, um, I, I think it's, um, although the, the results of the survey were pretty dire, dark, um, mm. I do think it's wonderful that uh, this report has been made about trans people by a trans-led organisation. So I, I, I just wanted to ask how it felt um, across the organisation to go through the survey's results. Yeah, look, it's always very confronting looking at what people are experiencing in our community. Mm. Some of the stories in there are 
seriously harrowing. And, um, you know, and, and part of me had, um, uh, you know, some misgivings about giving a platform to some of um, these really horrible stories um, that people have. But I think it's important that we're honest about what the impact um, that anti-trans hate is having on our community. Um, yep. So, yeah, look, I it was born out of an experience of um, my own period of facing escalated abuse online mm. during Kelly J. Keene. I was getting um, threats. I was getting um, abuse, trolled, all these sorts of things, um, and was feeling pretty uh, confronted by... Um, what was happening, especially with the the um, rally in Nam that was attended by neo Nazis. Yep. Yeah. So, so you know, out of that experience, we decided to that it was really important to report on this, so that people who aren't in the community can understand actually how much these kinds of events um, affect us. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah, it's wonderful. It's you know, especially with. Um, places like Channel 7 literally releasing reports, yeah. fear-mongering and spreading myths surrounding, like, detransition and, quote-unquote, mm. being forced to transition in the first place. Mm. Um, I want to talk more about these anti-vilification laws, um, which mm -hmm. the survey, uh, the report recommends. Do you think that's enough? So it's one good step. Um, we do need better laws. We need to protect anti-LGBT. Oh, sorry, <laughs> we need to protect trans people from anti-LGBT vilification. Um, but as well, there's a lot more that needs to be done. So we need yeah. better regulation for media outlets that platform disinformation. We need governments to work with social media companies to stop the spread of disinformation online, and also to work on ways that they can actually disrupt the organising of anti-trans hate groups. Yep. But as well, there are community-related inter interventions that are needed too. We've seen radicalisation and, and sort of extremism growing in our communities, which is really concerning yep. across a whole bunch of issues. We actually need to start looking at ways to curb extremism overall. And I think you know some form of de-radicalising approach needs to be investigated. But I think the other thing that we need is actually just money to do more research, to understand where this stuff is coming from, and how it's impacting our community. Mm. This report is the largest report um, of its kind in Australia right now. We need more of this kind of research at this kind of scale so that we can get a real picture of how it's happening, why it's happening, who's involved, um, and make really targeted plans and strategies to combat it. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, can you speak to more about how the report was funded? Oh, sure. Um, we're largely, you know, um, Trans Justice Project started at the beginning of the year. Yep. Uh, we're an organisation dedicated to um, building a movement fighting for freedom, justice and equality for all trans and gender diverse people. Yep. And uh, we uh, launched crowdfunding in February, I think, of this year to get started. So we're a relatively new organisation. Wow. But basically we were launched in response to what I was seeing in the US and the UK yep. starting to bleed over into Australia with, you know, anti-trans hate groups that exist in those countries starting to get started here as well. Mm. And also some of these myths, like you mentioned, that were on the TV last night, 
um, starting to uh, get spread through the media here too. Um, so I knew that we needed a translate organisation that could fight back against this um, movement. So uh, we got, I think, almost 2,000 supporters on that crowdfunder. So wow. it was really well supported by the community, which is wonderful. And since then, we've run fund- uh, fundraisers in, um, you know, since then that have uh, brought on people who give monthly donations and those sorts of things as well. So it's very much been backed by the community, um, which is wonderful to see. And, you know, originally we were doing um, this as a very short report and obviously we've managed to do something much larger. And we found that our community of supporters have been really happy to support that work, which is awesome. Yeah, that's really great. Um, Yeah, especially as, you know, a a fellow trans person existing Mm. uh, online and in person, I feel like has just gotten... I don't know, I wouldn't say harder and harder, but it sort of feels like there's more to worry about, you know, um, especially certain online platforms. Um, I wanted to ask about the online um, presence stuff, which is is spoken about in the report. Did Did it mention any online spaces in particular which were particularly problematic? No, it didn't. Um, There is a report out of the US, I think by GLAAD, that has found that Twitter or X um, is the worst platform for anti-trans hate at the moment, though. Mm. So I think from my own anecdotal experience, um, I have found Twitter um, or X to be the worst site for anti-trans hate. I find that I get the most abuse and harassment there. I know that many trans friends have shared that with me as well. Yep. But, yeah, we have we need more research to confirm that, basically. Yep. But I can say anecdotally that, like, I don't get that kind of abuse on Instagram and Facebook, which I'm also active on. Yeah, sure. um, it's a really stark difference in the kinds of, I guess, in the kinds of users that it attracts, but also in the way that the rules work on these different platforms that allow hate to go unchallenged. Mm. We know that... On Instagram, for instance, while there is still anti-trans hate, it's nowhere near as organised as it is on Twitter. And I think that something there tells us that um, that the rules that these platforms make yep. make a real impact on trans people's experiences on those platforms. Mm, or even the lack of rules. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Jackie, I just have um, just two more quick questions. Um mm. I wanted to just ask about the part that the Victoria Pride Lobby played in the report. Mm. Yeah, so we partnered up together right at the beginning of the report, um, helped design it together, helped put it out together. Mm. We've kind of been working together every step of the way to um, help get the survey out to community and then also, you know, to organise the event that we had in um, Mental Blank, Victorian Parliament um, last week. Um, as well. So, um, yeah, it's been really great to partner with um, another organisation to, um, I guess, help launch the report and everything. And, um, yeah, if people haven't heard of the Pride Lobby before, they should definitely check them out um, mm. on their website and socials. They're a great organisation doing a lot of work with particularly um, local government around, um, yeah, like pro-LGBT uh, programs. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, and just one last thing, Jackie. Um I just wanted to get your take um, 
more generally as 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 a trans person which ex- exists mm. within this media space um i just wanted to ask if you had anything to say more generally about trans represent trans representation within the media in this country yeah look it's um uh <laughs> look it's 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 a it's a bad time in the media landscape for for trans people we do have some shining beacons of of hope like i think it's wonderful that for example, Georgie Stone is returning to Neighbours um, now mm. that that's getting um, relaunched and everything. But we do need more trans stories shared in the media. And, you know, at the moment, all we're seeing is the only ways that trans people are talked about is in terms of controversy and debate. And actually, the humanity of our lives is largely left out of um, yeah. the public discourse right now. I think, look, the thing for me is that trans people should be able to feel safe in their own communities. Mm. And part of that safety means actually promoting understanding and um, familiarity with what it means to be trans, letting trans people tell their own stories, letting us represent ourselves, and also treating trans people with dignity and respect when they are in the public eye. Um, At the moment, I don't think that's being done. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jackie. I'm going to say it's it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we're going to keep going and move forward. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Thanks, Jackie. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. No worries. Bye. Great work, Rob. Great work. Thank you. So next up, we're going to play a song by the band RVG, a lovely song called Midnight Sun.
Welcome back, everybody, to Monday Breakfast uh, on 3CR 855 AM. Just before we move on, I want to say that if you found the last segment distressing and you're looking for support or someone to talk to, um, you can access the following free and confidential services. There's QLife at 1-800-184-527 or Rainbow Door at 1-800-729-367 or even Lifeline uh, crisis support at thirteen eleven fourteen, and one eight hundred respect. That's one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two for twenty four seven family violence and sexual assault helpline. Awesome, thank you, Rob. So now we'll be heading into a conversation with Professor Jill Newby, who is a clinical psychologist at University of New South Wales and the affiliated Black Dog Institute, which is a medical research institute that investigates mental health in Australia. And we're going to be discussing about an online course to help you stop ruminating. So joining me this morning is Professor Jill Newby. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so, Jill, before we get into talking about the course, can we just get you to explain a bit what ruminating means? I think our listeners, some might not understand what that means. Yeah, sure. It's sort of a fancy term to mm-hmm. describe when we dwell on the past or think and stew in our mind about negative topics. So we, we sort of think about negative stuff over and over again. In the past, that's what we call ruminating. But this course is also for worry. So mm-hmm. when people worry about the future, they worry about bad things happening um, and think of all the worst-case scenarios, mm-hmm. this course is also for them too. Mm, I see. So um, this is an, obviously an online course that helps with that. Uh, is there a name for that? And what does the course offer with this? Well, at the moment, we're just calling it the Worry and Rumination course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the best at labelling names <laughs> for, the, for courses. So um, we've got a bit of a way to, to go with that. Um, the course is going to be available in the next, hopefully, few months on a government-funded uh, online service called This Way Up. So um, you can look at the online courses already there on thiswayup.org.au. Mm-hmm. It's a UNSW and St. Vincent's Hospital um, network um, organisation. Um, so we developed the course a, a couple of years back. Um, my PhD student, Dr. Amy Joubert, developed it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very simple course. It's three online lessons that people do over six weeks. And it provides really practical techniques to help people worry less and dwell on negative thinking less mm. and I'm and there was actually a trial that managed to go through with this course could you explain how that go and how it went 
Sure. So we did a big randomised control trial um, where we compared two different versions of the online course to a control group who waited for the program for 18 weeks. And what we um, did in those two, um, the two treatment groups got the online course, one with clinician support over the phone. So a clinician would call them after each lesson. Um, And then the other group did it self-guided, so just on their own. And we compared the outcomes of those two groups with the control group. And what we found is that both groups who got the treatment program did really well. They helped reduce their negative thinking quite a lot um, by the end of the program. And those improvements lasted up to three months after the program. But we also found that people who got clinician support did a bit better. So the clinician-supported model was more effective than the self-guided model. Mm. Is there a reason why there's... Uh, the people who had the assistant, who had the online course, did better than the control group, even though they also received the online course. I was just confused with that bit. Oh, the control group didn't get the online course straight away. Oh, so t- what we compared is those outcomes when they, yeah, they weren't receiving treatment. So um, they got it after a delay period. So for people who got the online course, they did much better than people who didn't get the online course. Ah, uh, so. So because of that uh, aiding week pe- waiting period, is that the reason? Is that possibly one of the reasons why the results didn't do as well as the as the ones who got it first? Um, so, so people who did get the course did better. So mm. that's the first thing. Um, when you do the online program, you have better outcomes. Mm. And then the second finding was that when you get support from a clinician, so a clinical psychologist over the phone, you do a bit better than if you do the program on your own. Mm, I see. And so why why do you think this program will be really helpful and important for uh, people people in the future who who possibly want to take part in this course? Why do you think it's why do you think this is will be important for listeners? Well, it's just really relevant for a lot of people. It's not even just for people who experience depression or anxiety. I think we can all get trapped in this type of thinking from time to time when you know, negative thinking can spiral out of control and really interfere with our daily life. So because it's, you know, because it's so, um, can help so many people, then I think it would be really important from that perspective. What we found with, with this study is that we got a huge number of people signing up in a very short amount of time. So it suggests that a lot of people struggle with this thinking and they want help for it and that mm. there's a big community need to help them overcome it. I see. And did a lot of listeners, they if like even when you use the word rumination and some some people might not really understand what it meant in the first place, was, was there something they could instantly relate to that they knew that oh, this is exactly what I wanted? Uh, with the term rumination? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think everyone knows about that, but I think mm. a lot of people know the term worry. Uh, so when we worry about things, that's, that's a really common word that, that most people use to, you know, when we thinking about bad things happening in the future. So mm. I think that word really rings out to people and, and they can relate to that. I see. And for this for this online course, is it is it something that focuses on just specifically towards age group or is it like for everyone, basically? This is for adults, so for 18 and above. Um, mm. We are going to do some work over the next couple of years to develop a program for teens because we know teens can struggle with that type of thinking too um, but this one is just for adults. I see and coming a bit into the lesson and actions plan that was meant uh, that has that goes with this 
uh, online course. You mentioned uh, the content of it is illustrated in an comic style story. Could you explain a bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. So each lesson is a comic-based narrative. So where um, the person doing the course reads a story about two different characters who struggle with this type of thinking and they learn very practical techniques to help manage it. So you sort of learn by um, hearing and, and reading about their stories. So the mm-hmm. characters are based on a combination of clients that we see in the clinic um, who struggle with rumination and worry. Um, so it's very um, relatable in that the examples are what a lot of people struggle with. So when you go through that comic-based lesson, then you read through some, some slides that follow those characters And then afterwards, you download an action plan that gives you very specific, concrete skills that you can work on during the week and each day to help sort of manage this type of thinking. I see. And the fictional characters, uh, do you relate it to the personal stories of the participants or is it just something that's made up for for the participants? It's something that's made up for the participants. Yep. Um, we've got other examples in the action plan. So because, you know, different people can worry about different things. Yep. So with the characters in the story, we've based them on like very quite common examples of things people worry about. And then there's other examples in, in the um, in the action plans as well. Um, but I think that's where the clinician support comes in. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the people that got clinician support found that really helpful. And when you get support from a clinician, that can sort of tailor the content to your own story and your own examples um, to help you through it. I see. And so I just, just coming into the last question for you, Jill, uh, just to repeat again for listeners who didn't manage to catch it, what, what will be the next step for this program? What do you think our listeners can look forward to with this? So the next step is we will be making it online through um our collaborators at This Way Up. So I think if people were interested in doing the program, then check out thiswayup.org.au um, and maybe like them on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And then once the program becomes available, then they'll be notified. Um, so they can do that. If they need more immediate support, then they can look at one of those online programs um, or go to Head to Health, which also has other online programs that people can use right now. Um, but if they want more specialised support, then the best step is just to go to their GP and talk about um, that they want help and then they can refer them to the right person. I see. Oh, sorry, just wondering also, is there any uh, support and services that people could go to with Black Dog Institute? Support services? Yeah, so we do have an operating clinic. So, um, mm-hmm. so we have telehealth and face-to-face services for people who are in Sydney. They can do the face-to-face, but mm-hmm. the telehealth are available um, beyond that. So um, they can look up Black Dog Clinics. Um, We also have some online programs as well. So My Compass is an example where it's a self-guided online program for mild to moderate anxiety and depression. So people can start that straight away if they're interested. I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jill, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jill. And that was Professor Jill Newby, who is the clinical psychologist at University of New South Wales and the affiliated Black Dot Institute, which is a medical research institute that investigates mental health in Australia, where we're discussing about an online course, which is not publicly official to be out yet, but hopefully in the coming two months, as Jill mentioned, to help you stop ruminating, which basically looks back into the stories of your past and also your worries so how how was that, James and Rob? That was really good. 
Yeah. Yeah. Something like I, I, I could use mm. right about now. Super important. Yeah. I think when, personally, if, when I, if I look at a course that says rumination and worry, I think even even if I didn't understand what ruminating means, I understand that it's about a course that helps you to speak about your worries and discuss it. So it's quite interesting that like, there's also this inclusion of word that makes people wonder, oh, so what is this actually actually about? And turn, and yes, mm-hmm. it turns out it's to help you with looking at your worries and, your, yeah. and the stories of your past, which is quite a good way to, dis- I guess, overcome a lot of... Like, uh, obstacles that you have been facing before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's super important, I guess, especially, you know, the world that we live in, mm. um, to know, like, how to do that kind of stuff in a safe environment and in a safe way. Yeah. Mm. It's probably not something you can ever totally get rid of, but maybe manage it better so that you can go into your day and have a have a clearer head for mm. for all of life's little things. Yeah. Not yeah. ruminate too much on yeah. them. Mm. As, and this is also like, it's kind of like a course, so you're kind of going through, you're learning as well at the same yeah. time. So it's like, you're helping yourself to recover, but also at the same time you're learning something. So yeah. I think it's quite a good thing as well. Yeah. Fantastic. As well, looking forward to this as well. All right, we'll <laughs> jump to a few announcements and then we'll jump to another song, I've Never Felt More Alive by Quality Used Cars. <laughs> Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel. Yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. Exactly torture, bit 
enough to make you curl at the toes Not quite a total defeat But more a hung parliament If I stay behind It might buy you a bit more time up ahead Cause it's all alright No reason to fight ya It's not worth my time It's not worth my perspiring What's one more drink? You're listening to GCR eight five five AM, and that was I've never felt, felt more alive. <laughs> I've never felt more alive by Clyde Used Cars. So, yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our show. And James and Rob, how was the show overall? That was a great really? show. I rate it. Awesome. Yeah. And what you're looking forward to the weekend? A uh, week, the rest of the week, not weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, I get a chance to sit on a beach and eat ice cream again because that's really all I want to do. Delightful. But uh, aside from that, I'm I'm hoping to check out Goddess, which is um, on an Acme at the moment, which is uh, about women and gender transcending superstars across the wow. screen from the last 120 years. Whoa. Um, yeah, it ends in October, so I'm really hoping to check it out. 
Sounds awesome. I'd be keen on that. Nice. You games? My week, I'm looking to do a bit of reading. Mm-hmm. You know, you you go through winter thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to read some books, and then you don't because it's cold. And uh. But now spring's out, I reckon, reading in a park. I'm going to try it. It's the best. It's going to be good. How about you, Grace? Well, I'm back to my reality of going... To- going through my assignments because I've had my one week vacay so Boo. I can't do that anymore unfortunately so yes that's what I'm going to be facing for this rest of the rest of the week basically well good luck to you Grace I hope you, you I hope you you can stick with it <laughs> thank you those assignments are pesky mm-hmm. <laughs> yes so thanks for listening to Monday Breakfast everybody this has been Rob Grace and James we'll be here every Monday thank you for listening and have a lovely lovely week 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.